I just wanted to share with you today some of the exciting upcoming episodes I'm going to have on the show. As many of you realize by now, this is not just a show about young children, but it is also about helping all of us to remember, remember our childlike nature and to go back to that source of innocence and unconditional love with no ego and and leading a, a really loving life. I have coming up a three-part series on children who have challenges, challenges unlike ours anyway, and they're actually gifts, I'm going to say, because that's truly what they are, and talking to um, some people about autism, Asperger's, Downs, and other sorts of gifts that these children have and what they bring into this world and what they have to teach us. And I'm dedicating that that series, three-part series, to my wonderful nephew, Trevor Nixon. I'll also be doing a series on plant medicine, which I'm really excited about. And I actually have a personal experience to share with that and I'll have some experts on the program. And I'm also very interested in indigenous cultures and healing and their practices. So I just want to ask you, what are you curious about? I would love to explore anything in this, in this area. So please let me know. And with that, here we go. Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Hello, today I am honored to have Dr. Jeff Driscoll on the program. Dr. Driscoll received his MD from the University of Utah School of Medicine. He is board certified in internal medicine and is a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. He practiced emergency medicine at a level one trauma center teaching students and residents for 25 years and served as chairman of the department for eight years, receiving awards and publishing articles for service quality in the emergency department. In the emergency emergency department of a major trauma center, Dr. Driscoll frequently communicated with souls who hovered between this life and the next. He saw people leave their bodies at the time of death and communicated with them. Their messages were always of love and hope. For 20 years, Dr. O'Driscoll refused to speak about his experiences, but now in his award-winning memoir, Not Yet, and in venues across the country, Dr. O'Driscoll describes the otherworldly communications that began in his childhood shortly after the farm accident that took the life of his older brother. Dr. O'Driscoll's empowering message honors the divinity in every soul. 
He has also published a novel and a series of six children's books, which I'm very excited to talk about today. He paints, sculpts, and enjoys bicycling. He's married to Sheila for more than 33 years, and they have five children and five grandchildren. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Oh, what an honor to be with you. Yes. So um, let's just jump right in and tell us a little bit. Um, you're a scientist. So how you began down this spiritual path um, in in the trauma room and some of the experiences um, that you began to have in the very beginning? Well, some of my experiences in the emergency department are the most dramatic. And so that's often where we start the discussion. But uh, what actually started my experiences uh, commenced way back in childhood, as you mentioned. Um, my brother was, I was very close to my older brother, and he was killed in a farm accident. And he tipped a tractor over. And it was shortly after that that I started uh, getting communications. Um, generally just voices talking to me. Sometimes I recognize the voice. A lot of times at that young age, I didn't. It took me a long time before I started to recognize sometimes who was speaking to me. But I think at age 16, my brother saved my life when I was driving a car on a narrow country road about 60 miles an hour, a Volkswagen bug with two friends in the car, not wearing any seatbelts. And a voice spoke to me and said, you need to slow down. And for some reason, I listened to that voice, and I slowed down and went around the corner and met a Cadillac head-on. There was wow. a lot of damage, but nobody was injured. And I think I actually might have died that night had I not heard that voice and slowed down. And it wasn't until many years later that I realized that I think that was my brother speaking to me. Wow. And how did that, as you... As you got older and you became a physician, how did that, how does that work, you being a scientist and hearing these, these spiritual, having these spiritual experiences? People ask me that often. And interestingly enough, I never viewed it as a contradiction. It never felt like a contradiction to me. I had a very traditional Western medicine trained uh, uh, medical training, and it taught me all about how to take care of the body the physical body. And that never conflicted with me providing care for the soul, for the spirit, for that part of us, that essence of us that's eternal or uh, that continues to live after death, in my view. And so the fact that there was a body or a spirit, uh, I should say a body and a spirit, never seemed like a contradiction to me. In the ER, I took care of the body and sometimes I'd have spiritual experiences, though I didn't talk about them. Yeah, and, and can you tell us a little bit what a spiritual experience would be would be like? Yes, the challenge with talking about spiritual experiences is the vocabulary, because everybody uses a different vocabulary. Um, for me, I'll give you one example. I, I walked into the ER to start my shift one day, and I felt a spiritual presence. And... On this occasion, it felt like a vibration that started in the core of my soul and radiated outward until it reverberated through my whole body. And I'd had that experience before. I recognized that as a spiritual presence. And I became aware of this woman who was asking me silently for help. And I walked around the corner and in the patient care room, a doctor and a team were trying to resuscitate this elderly woman. And I had a knowledge that that's who was communicating with me. 
I wasn't her doctor. I had absolutely no responsibility for her care. Everybody else was doing what they needed to do. And I just quietly, nonchalantly walked over and rested my leg on, or excuse me, my hand on her leg, because I've learned how important touch is in these kind of experiences. And as I touched her, she asked me if she could leave. And I paused for a moment and I wondered, why are you asking me? But as I thought that, I got some message from an eternal place, and I communicated back to her silently. I mean, they were literally doing chest compressions. She was intubated. Nobody was aware of what was going on except me. I communicated. She thought it was time to go, and she felt that it was the right thing to do. It was probably all right for her to go. And at that moment, she rose up out of her body. I saw that essence of who she was. I saw a soul that was about half the age of the physical body or had the appearance of being about half the age, I should say. And she filled me with light and glory and she thanked me profoundly and then she left. And as I turned and walked out of the room behind me, I could hear the physician in charge in military time pronounce her time of death. And I thought, oh, I know, I, I saw her leave. And I walked over and logged onto the computer, and that's how I started my shift that day. Wow. And you, when you say you saw her, I know you talk about spiritual eyes. Can you expand on that a little bit? People ask me this a lot about what did I see. I had one friend, he wasn't a friend at the time, he was a total stranger. He was involved in a car crash, and... and uh, he was extricated from the vehicle. The, car, the crash had killed his wife and his 14-month-old son and nearly killed him. And he was flown to my trauma center. And when I went into the trauma room, he was unconscious on the gurney and the team was taking care of him. And standing above him in the air was his uh, recently deceased wife. And she was observing his care. And she thanked me profoundly for the care he was receiving. And it was like, it was like somebody turning the volume down on the TV. Everybody in the room was still talking to each other, still doing their medical tasks. I had no medical tasks to do because I wasn't his doctor. Um, but everything got quiet for me. And there's this profound download of knowledge. I, I knew who she was and who her husband was, though I'd never met either one of them. I knew he'd live. I knew he'd lose his leg. Um, and... I could see beyond her. It wasn't like I could see through her, like she was translucent, like in a movie. It was just that I could see her, but I could see what was beyond her at the same time. And when I walked over and I looked down at the gurney, who, who is now a good friend of mine, his name's Jeff Olson, um, I looked down at his injured leg and I could still see his wife standing above me in the air because I could see in all directions at the same time. And the way I think about this, when people ask me how I see, from a medical perspective, uh, things in our environment generate uh, reflected light in wavelengths that enter our eyes and are transmitted by rods and cones into electrical signals that transverse our optic nerve and go to our, uh, uh, our occipital cortex, where they're interpreted and generated into images. And in a spiritual way, it's like all of those physical things are bypassed and you just get the image. You just, you just experience it, but it's not just seeing because you hear and you know and you feel all at the same time. And so I use the word experience. Uh, I experienced her presence. 
Wow, beautiful. And I and I know you and Jeff Olson, the story you just told, have developed a an amazing friendship and you travel around the world talking about your experience. Can you share a little bit about how that friendship evolved? Because obviously you did not know one another at all. And when he first met you, he didn't, he wasn't aware that you were there. And so how it's just evolved. Yes, he was unconscious when we first met. There was one person in the emergency department whom I trusted enough to talk about my spiritual experiences with, and that was because she had her own spiritual experiences. And in fact, she was there that day I saw Jeff Olson's wife, Tamara, and she saw and experienced it as well. And she came to me a month later, and she said, we have to go tell Jeff what happened, Jeff Olson. And I was very reluctant. And at first I said, no, you go tell him if you want to. I don't need to go at all. But she drug me up to his hospital room. And this was a month after the accident. He'd had his leg amputated by then. And uh, she sat down at the bedside and started to tell him about our experience. And he started to weep. And that's when he revealed that even before his body was extricated from the vehicle, he'd left his body and he'd had an experience with Tamara. Uh, and she told him, you have to go back and, and raise our other child because their seven-year-old had survived the accident essentially uninjured. Wow. And I didn't know that he'd had that experience, of course, when I met him a month earlier in the, in the trauma room. But because he and I had had these profound experiences, him saying goodbye to his wife and me saying hello to her, uh, we we bonded and we're still dear friends today. Um, and Jeff had a series of experiences. One of them that's really profound was when he was given the opportunity to experience his deceased son, Griffin. Um, he, he was given an opportunity to hold this child, Griffin, this seven month old or 14 month old child. And he said it was so physical for him, despite the fact that he realized he was in spirit when he was having the experience, uh, he could feel Griffin's breath against his chest and he could feel his, his ribs moving in and out as he breathed and he was struck by how profound it was. And in the process of embracing his son, he became aware of this divine presence in the room, a, a presence so profound and so divine that he dared not turn around to look. He felt the reverence of it and he, just, he didn't look. But this, uh, this being approached him from behind and embraced him. And he had this understanding that as he was embracing his own son, he was also being embraced by a divine being. And he wondered for a few moments. He, he said he thought about the things he figured he'd done wrong in his life, things that he thought were wrong, but he'd done them anyway. And he wondered if he could ever be forgiven. And the voice that spoke to him said, we don't think about things that way here. There's nothing to forgive. Everything is in divine order. And he understood that he wasn't only being embraced by the divine, but that he was divine himself. And one of the things that bound us together in our friendship was he struggled with that for a while. That, that contradicted some of the, his beliefs that he'd held in his life. And for a year, he and I uh, would meet regularly for lunch, and we'd talk about these things. Because I'd been in some places before that taught me the answers to his questions, and I knew how to help him. And we're still friends today. Beautiful. And you And you do a lot of speaking engagements together and we do I've seen you and it's it's amazing well I know he he wrote your your foreword in your book and he said that 
trusted friends are rare and wonderful. And I, you were one of these trusted friends for him. And I know vice versa that you've just developed this beautiful relationship. So that's wow. Um, and you talk about how you view birth and death as really the same, just it was it's just looking at it from a different perspective. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Of course. Um, people think that sounds strange when they initially hear it, and then I explain it to them and they kind of resonate with it. Imagine yourself as if you're in a big room and it's it's not dark, it's just not really bright. I mean, you can see what you're doing, you can walk around, but it's not bright. But on one side of the room, there's this big, thick, heavy curtain, and beyond that curtain is this profound, beautiful, glorious, bright light. And on the other side of the room is another curtain, and the same thing on the other side of it. And every once in a while, on one side of the room, the veil, the curtain, the drape, whatever, is drawn back, and somebody enters the room. And if you're close by, some of that glory, that light, spills through and gets onto you, and you get to experience some of it with them for a few moments. And every once in a while, somebody draws the drape back on the other side, and somebody from the room leaves and enters back into the light. And again, if you're close, you might get to see in there. You might even see somebody recognize uh, before the veil closes again. And we tend to think of birth and death as being very different, but I think of them as being the same thing. We think of them as different because we see only half of each one from a mortal perspective. We see the glory and the joy and the rejoicing when a soul enters this life, but we don't see the people assembled in something akin to a funeral on the other side of that veil, comforting one another and reassuring one another and saying things like, it'll be okay. He's going to be fine. It'll only be a short time and we'll be together again. It's for the best. And on the other side of the room, we're the ones weeping and, and reassuring each other. And on the other side of the veil, there's these family members and loved ones and friends who are rejoicing and welcoming a soul back again and embracing one another. I think birth and death are essentially the same thing. Yes, absolutely beautiful. Wow. Well, in your book, um, Not Yet, you talk about William Woodsworth's beautiful poem, which begins with, our birth is but a sleeping and a forgetting. And then he goes on to describe, heaven lies about us in our infancy, and it comes to fade into the light of the common day. Eventually, for we forget the glories we've known and the imperial palace whence we came our soul's immensity. You say that you believe in the accuracy of this poem because of your daughter's. Yes, my daughters both described profound experiences to me when they were little, and they did it in a very matter-of-fact, unashamed, unembarrassed kind of a way. Um, My one daughter, uh, my my kids grew up with a Christian background, and so Christ was a figure that was prominent in, in their belief system. And my one daughter, one night, just matter of fact, we told me that Jesus would come and sit on her bed at night and hold her hand when she was scared. And uh, my other daughter, I think she was about five at the time, was sitting on my lap telling me what Jesus looked like. And I said, how do you know what Jesus looks like? And she reached up and took my face in her hands and she tilted my head back a bit. And she just said, 
well, don't you seem when you look up? <laughs> Neither one of my daughters remembers either of those experiences now. But when they were little, they were having these profound experiences, and they were, that was just part of life for them. Right. That is so beautiful. And how do you, how do you think we can cultivate so they can keep, I know, I know usually around five or six years old, children stop forgetting those sorts of memories. I'm, I am actually gathering those stories now for a book I'm going to be writing. But um, what do you think we can do as parents or caregivers to help them, to help them keep that, keep that inside of them to hopefully maybe strengthen their, have some inner strength to help them navigate the world as they get older. Does that make sense? I think one of the challenges children face with such experiences is they don't hear other people talking about them. Yes. And so they stop talking about them. And when they stop talking about them, they stop experiencing them and eventually they start forgetting about them. Um, if we were more open to our own spiritual experiences and if we talked in appropriate ways with appropriate people about them, I think that would foster a continued spiritual presence in our life. Um, people come to me all the time and some, some feel like they've never had a spiritual experience and they ask me about it. How can you do this? How can you have these experiences? And it's interesting. People, uh, they're comfortable with the notion of having a, musical gift, but you still have to practice 40,000 hours to be proficient with your musical gift. And yet they seem to think that spiritual gifts somehow should come perfected and ready to be exercised without making any effort to realize them or to practice them or to grow into them. So I give some people some very simple exercises to do where they can start to practice things spiritual and have experiences and come to trust them and lean into them. Nice. And I know you always suggest to, to people to do one thing in I, their daily lives. I do. When people tell me they've never had a spiritual experience, I suggest to them doing this one thing. Whatever you do in the morning, whether it's meditation or prayer or contemplation, however you get centered spiritually in your morning, ask this one question. What can I do today to serve someone else? And I promise you, you will get an answer. It might be a thought. It might be a flash of somebody's face in your mind. It, you might hear a voice. You, you might get an inkling to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hey, I was just thinking about you, thought I'd reach out. And even though these things seem small, if you accept it as a spiritual experience, as you, if you accept it as an answer to your query and you act on it, then you start to grow into it. And the next day, it's a little bit easier and a little bit more clear. And it's through that practice on a regular basis that we learn to hear and experience and feel spirit. Yeah. And what a beautiful thing to be able to share with a young one that experience or to talk to them, what can you do to help someone today? Yeah, I had one experience. You'll like this one because it has to do with children. I asked one morning, I said, uh, what should I do today? It, that's the casual version of my question. <laughs> to the divine. Yeah. Yeah. What should I do today? And the answer came back very quick, quickly and very clearly. Be kind. 
And I remember thinking, oh, come on, you got something better than that. that that's too simple. And I remember being a bit disappointed, but that was the message I got. Be kind. Well, here's the challenge. I was putting all the kids in the car that day to go on a family vacation. And so we were spending most of the day cooped up together in a car. And the, <laughs> and the kids were making me crazy. And I was remembering these two words over and over into my head. And I was letting it roll off my back and try not to get irritated. And I remember at the end of the day, writing in my journal and thinking, wouldn't it have been a shame if I'd have spent all this time trying to do something nice for my children? And the one memory they ended up with, with was dad got mad and yelled at us. And I was yes. so grateful for those two divine, profound words that seem so yeah. simple at the beginning, the beginning of the day. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because, because that was always my, um, my saying to my kids, you know, just always be kind. It's, it's very, they're, they're two very profound. It's a profound saying. So that's, that's really beautiful. Yeah, and we get, you, we get off track sometimes because we think spiritual things need to be complex and complicated and and we forget that the most simple profound things are often the most spiritual things as well right right you also say in your book i believe that the universe can influence and instruct us um can you you, you've talked about that a little bit but can you expand on that and how can someone recognize spiritual promptings You get a feeling, if you don't recognize spiritual promptings, think of it this way. You get a feeling when you go to La Scala in Milano and you attend an opera, right? You have a feeling when you stand on the south rim of the Grand Canyon and you view magnificence. You have a feeling when you hold your first child or grandchild. Those are spiritual feelings. And if you start to be cognizant of when and under what circumstances you have those feelings, you can start to put yourself mentally in a place to be open to them more often. And you can start to discern meaning and direction from them. So I can't, I can't spend every day looking over the Grand Canyon. But I remember what it felt like when I was there. And I can open my soul. And when I get that same feeling, I can think, oh, this is important. This means something. I was writing somebody a text message earlier today. And in the middle of the text message, I had this most profound spiritual feeling. And I sent the text message. And when he, when it, when he responded a second later, it was an OMG with three exclamation points. And he said, I felt it when I read your message. And I thought, wow. And he's in Maine. He's on the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. That is beautiful. Yeah, being aware, being present. Wow, wow. And quieting your mind. Yes. Yeah, being present, exactly. Um, so in one passage in your book, you talk about watching young children playing on a playground and wondering how these souls have possessed such vast knowledge before their birthing now know so little why do you think that we forget and why we are wrapped so tightly in the veil as you put it somebody asked me this question at a conference once they kind of they kind of asked the flip side of the question actually they said 
what would this life be like if we could just all remember who we were? (laughs) And I said, it would be pointless. There's no reason to be here if we all remembered exactly who we were. The whole point was to forget who we are and to come and learn what it feels like to be something else. And um, if, if we could remember everything we knew before we were born, we'd be accountable for all that knowledge to act accordingly. And so uh, sources mercifully uh, placed us in this body, which is a veil for us. It filters things for us. It causes us to forget once what we once know, knew and then re- recall it bit by bit over time as we grow and learn and we're able to be accountable for it. And uh, the body acts as a filter, if you will. You, you know, Dan was a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon. He was a total materialist. He believed that the consciousness existed, that the brain created consciousness. Then he had his near-death experience. He was unconscious for a week in a coma with a severe meningitis. And when he'd recovered enough to read his own medical record, mind you, he's a neurosurgeon, uh, he concluded that his brain was far too sick to have constructed what he experienced. Now he totally believes in what he calls non-local consciousness. That is, that our consciousness exists in spite of our brain, not because of it. And that the brain actually acts as a filter to help us not remember everything so that we can live in this realm. Right, right. I know, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Mary Neal. Yeah, she's a friend of mine. Yes, yes. And after her profound near-death experience, and she, orthopedic surgeon, very scientific, but sort of said the same thing, that now she realizes that spirituality and science um, they they merge they're together and one cannot be without the other and science teaches you how things you know work and spirituality teaches you why and i i thought that was such a you know such a great way to put it i i so. agree with that i think that true science and true spirituality are in perfect harmony and when we have more science we'll understand these things better yeah, yeah, and it's it's coming. It's it's coming for sure. So you speak of the most important lessons to learn um, that they are love and empathy. Can you expand on that a little bit? I can. I had a period in my life where I was in a really difficult, dark place, and it came to me inadvertently almost, it seemed, uh, not by intention in some ways, it seemed. A, a friend, or, well, a stranger came to me in a public place, and she, we started that conversation with, uh, she said she knew me from somewhere, and we finally figured out that we'd met before, years before. And at the time, I learned that her husband had just died in a car crash, just after she'd given birth to their sixth child. And there was this profound, heavy sadness in her life, just this intense grieving. And I wanted to help her, and I didn't know how. And one day, I was riding home from the hospital in the middle of the night, and a voice spoke to me. I call her Rebecca in my book. And the voice that spoke to me said, is Rebecca's family less important in my eyes than yours? And I said, well, no, of course not. And the voice said, then why should they be in yours, in your eyes? Why should they be less important? 
And I I immediately started rationalizing. I'm thinking, but wait a minute, those are my wife and children. They have to be first priority. But I had this download at the same time, and I understood the voice that was speaking to me loved all souls equally. Hmm. And I asked that night, I said, can I carry some of Rebecca's spiritual burden for her and help her? And the answer was yes. And I was surprised because I had not read or heard of anybody doing any such thing before. It was a complete naive request on my part. And the horrible blackness and sadness and sorrow and loneliness that was part of Rebecca's life settled onto mine and it went on for years. Wow. And one day it was so bad. I was all alone at home. And uh, I had to sit down on my bed because I thought I was going to fall down. It was so bad. And, and it just closed in this horrible black foreboding. And I thought I was going to die. Mind you, and I'm, I'm an emergency physician. I literally thought I was going to die. And the voice that spoke to me said, this is how Rebecca felt the day her husband died. Wow. Now, I'm not a woman, and my spouse didn't die in a car crash. So my circumstances were different, but I was given to know the feelings and feelings are what craft our souls and make us who we are. That's who, that's what changes us. And uh, that's how I started to learn empathy in a profound way by having somebody else's experiences given to me in a spiritual way. And, uh, Six months or a year later, I was pleading with heaven to be done with this horrible circumstances. In retrospect, it was a, it was a selfish attempt to renege on a promise because Rebecca's husband hadn't come back to life. There was no way out for her. And I'd, I'd asked for the experience. And I'm pleading for some way out. And Spirit spoke to me and said, not yet. That's the title of my book. That's where the title comes from. Yes. That experience. And so it was through those, and I felt hopeless for a time. And hopelessness is not good. Being without hope is soul-destroying. And one night about a year later, I was pleading again, and I was shown a path. I could seal spiritual light, and I was told the steps to take to extricate myself from the situation, and I was given permission to go. And then the voice that spoke to me said, but if you want the greater blessing, endure it for now. And as sad and as horrible as that sounds, that was the night I got hope back because I understood there was a divine purpose in what I was going through. Right. There, was, there was a reason for it. And all I had to do was trust and go forward, which is what I did. And, and after about four, almost five years of that, I was talking with a friend of mine who was much older than me, very experienced, very wise guy. And, uh, he knew some of what I was going through and he leaned back in his chair that day and he put his feet up on his desk and he looked at me and he said, empathy is a good thing. And that time in the darkness was what enabled me to help Jeff Olson less than a year later when I met him mm-hmm. and the things he was going through. I was finally grateful for those horrible experiences because I knew the answers to his questions and I was able to help him. Wow. And that's what empathy is about. So what was your greatest lesson from all of that? I mean, that was a long time, a significant amount of time. Yeah, yeah. And I think the big lesson, the profound lesson is that we're here to learn empathy and we're here to help each other. 
I think the only thing that matters in this life is to what degree did you learn to love and did you help other people? And so that's what kind of fed in in large measure to my personal mission statement that's on my business cards and my Facebook page and my website is I exist to help souls heal. I never thought of myself as a healer in the ER, if you can imagine. But after I stopped seeing patients in the ER a couple of years ago, I, uh, I had these, some of these experiences. And one of them, a friend of mine was talking to me and he said, he looked at me and he said, I think you're a healer. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so I grew up in a Christian home and I said, there's only one healer. And I can help people, but there's only one healer. And he looked at me and he said, I disagree. I think you're a healer and I think you should ask for permission to use the word. And I took him, I took him at his word and I went home and I, I went out for a run and, and uh, I asked, I said, uh, is it okay to call myself a healer? And this divine being came to me and he chuckled a little bit and he said, of course, I made you a healer. And I had this profound wow. download that me being a healer doesn't diminish him. He's not jealous. If I'm, <laughs> if I'm really good at something, it doesn't make him less. Yes. And that's when I started to step into this notion that I can use my experience of the last 30, 40 years, the hard times, losing my brother, some of the things I had in the ER, this, this experience with Rebecca, I can help other people heal. And that's what I try to do now. Right. And I know you had that experience, that message come to you um, after the woman on the airplane, you were talking to her. Oh, yes. Jeff Olson set up my first formal speaking engagement. Mind you, I hadn't spoken about any of these things for more than 20 years. Wow. And when I finally agreed to talk to a few selected, trusted people, Jeff Olson set up my first speaking engagement. Of all places, it was in Salem, Massachusetts. I said, Jeff, really? It's taken me 25 years to talk about seeing spirits, and you set up my first speaking engagement in Salem? He laughed, kind of like you're laughing. He said, yeah, it'll be great. So I went to the airport. I had a handful of freshly printed books. I just published my book. And I had them in my suitcase. And I'm sitting in the Delta Lounge, and this young couple comes and sits next to me, and they start the question of where are you going and what are you doing. And when they found out I was speaking and they asked me my topic, uh, this young woman's whole countenance changed. And she looked at me and she said, my grandfather just died, and he's come to me a couple of times. Mm. And initially I thought, wow, why are you telling a perfect stranger your, your most profound personal experience? And then I realized she thought I, she felt I was a safe place and that I'd listen and believe her. And I'd seen, I'd, I'd been an emergency physician for 25 years by then. I, I estimated I'd seen in excess of 60,000 patients. And I got on the plane to go to Boston and somewhere in the air between Salt Lake City and Boston, Spirit spoke to me and said, you will help more people with this book than you helped as a physician in the emergency department. And then, wow. I, and then I had a different attitude about sharing. Yes. My experiences weren't just for me. They were, they were to help others, and I can't help others if I don't share them. So now I feel differently about why I had some of my experiences. Right, right. And that's the healing aspect. Yes. So I know that you have now embarked on writing some children's books, and they seem to reflect the lessons learned 
you stay, or they don't seem to, they do reflect the lessons that you actually state at the end of your book. A few are believe, ponder, ask, listen, don't judge, trust, forget, remember, love. So tell us about um, why you began to write um, these children's books and what it has taught you going through the process. I started writing them very innocently when my three-year-old granddaughter, who was very precocious, she's now six, uh, asked me one day in the car, she said, tell me, Papa, tell me a story. And we were in the car, so I had to make it up. So I made up a story about Muck the Duck, who learned something about bullies and bullying. And uh, three days later, she was telling the, the story in such detail. My wife said, Jeff, you have to write that down. In fact, she'd go to my wife and she'd say, Grandma, tell me about Muck the Duck. And she'd start to tell the story. <laughs> and my granddaughter, her name's Camille, she said, no, 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 that's not right. And she'd correct her. Uh, <laughs> I love it. So, so I wrote it down, and then I found an illustrator who's just exceptional, and we had so much fun putting together the book that we did five more after that. And I think the last one I did was called Ringo the Dingo, because I wanted to get off the continent. I wanted to get outside the U.S., so uh, Vanilla the Gorilla lives in Cameroon, and Ringo the Dingo lives in the <laughs> Northwest Territories in Australia, and Ringo learns this profound lesson of just being able to say, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. Yes. Whoa, what if we could all do that better? So all these beautiful lessons that our children will, you know, carry with them and learn as they grow older. And I, I just find that that's beautiful, that being beautiful. So what are the greatest lessons children, especially your children, have taught you? Oh, they teach me unconditional love in a profound way. They also teach me something, I think they teach me something about how heaven might view us. Because I saw this in my children, but it was, it was amplified greatly in my grandchildren. I saw their divine nature. I saw their perfection. And I'm not saying that in just a syrupy sort of uh, grandfatherly way. <clears throat> I mean, literally, I understood that they didn't have the capacity to do things wrong that they were just learning. And if my grandchild picked up a crayon and colored on the wall, they hadn't done some bad thing to be scolded for. They were just learning. And I think when we beat ourselves up so much about the mistakes we make in life, sometimes we have some divine progenitor, male or female or both, uh, up in heaven that's looking down on us and saying, you're just learning. Give yourself a break. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. And my grandchildren helped me appreciate that more. Wow. Wow. That is so, so true. Such an, such an interesting way to look at it. Wow. So if you took a walk with your five-year-old self, what would you say to yourself? I would say to myself exactly what I just said. Lighten up. Give yourself a break. Uh, about a year ago, I read my entire journal of 40 years. It's the first time I'd read it since I wrote it. And I was always beating myself up for something. You know, you slept in too late. You, I, exercise, I didn't exercise enough. I ate too much. Mm -hmm. I'm always beating myself up. And as I read my journal in, you know, that compressed form, and you see that, that was the message I actually told myself uh, less than a year ago was, Jeff, lighten up. Give yourself a break. You're okay. 
you know, yeah. stop beating yourself up for things. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. What what a gift that has been that you've written that journal. I'm a big journal. I, I write in a journal since I was in high school and I've written a lot of stories, which I'm going to share on the program. Some of them um, letters to my children and some of them are goofy and silly and they're so beautiful. Like your muck the duck to share when, when I, I was sharing a story with my 20 year old daughter the other day when she was like three years old and we just laughed and giggled. It was all about her doing, you know, the silly little thing. And it's such a great gift to give, you know, so but what a special gift that you've written in the journal and you're able to go back and read and wow, ponder yeah. and ask <laughs> and forgive. And I- I was so grateful for some of those experiences. I wrote about my own children when they were small. I laughed and laughed when I read yeah. something. I was having a conversation now with Camille. She's now six. This was just about a week ago. And uh, we're chatting away. And all of a sudden, she kind of gets this mischievous look in her eye. And she kind of quiets her voice a little bit like she's telling a secret. And she proceeds to tell me about when she was little, which was, you know, when she was five. <laughs> yes, she's now yes. six. <laughs> She said that when her mom would fall asleep, she'd sneak into the kitchen and she'd get a spoon and eat sugar straight out of the sugar bowl. (laughs) And she was so proud of herself, you know? So sweet. Wow. Adorable. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for everything today. And do you have anything you'd like to add that I I didn't ask? Yes. I'll add one thing. I was fasting and meditating for a message for a group I was going to speak to nearly a year ago. I take this very seriously when I have a speaking engagement. And even Mm -hmm. if I'm just meeting with one person like I am today for a mentoring session this afternoon, um, and I ask, what is the message? What do you want me to say? And it came back immediately and very clearly, three things. Tell them they're good enough. Tell them they're divine. Tell them they're loved. That was the message. And a few weeks later, I I ran into this guy who is a very successful international public speaker, makes a lot of money doing it. I was chatting with him, and he must have thought I was asking for advice because he started to tell me how I need to define my audience and adjust my message to have the biggest audience, and da 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 and he gave me all this free advice I wasn't asking for. Yes. But I was thinking about it a few weeks later, and I was going to meet with the person for an individual mentoring session, and uh, I was thinking, how am I going to adjust my message to reach a bigger audience? And the voice that had spoken to me a few weeks before came back and said, I gave you the message. I'll bring you the audience. Love it. So, wow. I tr- I try to share that message often. Not it's not always the right one, but frequently it is the right one. And people okay. need to know they're loved, they're divine, and they're enough just the way they are right now. Ah, uh, just to carry that in your heart every day, all day. Beautiful. Well, if people um, want to find you, how can they do that? I have a website. It's called helpingsoulsheal.com. You can also get there just with my name, jeffodriscoll.com. I'm easy to find on Facebook. And uh, um, you can get my books uh, through Amazon and Kindle or on my Facebook page, or excuse me, my website. Um, 
I don't ship my children's books outside the U.S. The shipping's too expensive. <laughs> but in the continental U.S., I ship them. And my, I, as you mentioned earlier, I have a novel. I think some of my best writing, frankly, is in my novel because I wrote it from a spiritual perspective, but it was before I had the courage to take ownership of it for myself, right? Oh. So it's a, it's a novel, but it's, it's, it, it deals with a very difficult spiritual journey. And uh, it's called Who Buried Achilles? That's on Amazon and Kindle and on my website as well. And my memoir, you already mentioned, Not Yet. Yes. Well, thank you. I'll have to read that book. I haven't. That's one I have not read. So, well, thank you very much. And um, can't tell you how much I appreciate you you being on the show. And for the listeners, um, the way to reach Jeff, all of, all of the things he just said will also be in the show notes. Oh, great. So you have a great day and um, we will talk again soon. Very nice to chat with you, Marla. Thank you for having okay. me. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.